Well, brothers and sisters, what a joy it is to gather here. You each are sitting in individual seats. Um, and when you gather together on the Lord's Day, you're gathered in benches or chairs as well. But the reality is what we read in this passage is there is one body. Christ said to his disciples that this oneness, this unity, is what the world will see in you that will also draw them to me, because I and my Father are one. And every time we repeat the words of the Apostles' Creed, we are making this statement of a confession of faith. We believe a one holy Catholic universal church. And we are grateful for these opportunities the Lord gives us to mingle, as we do here at this place, with various nationalities and people groups and languages. And we can demonstrate that, at least in some outward way, in uh, significance as we gather together. But I want to deepen our understanding this morning uh, by considering this passage that's before us as well. And what's a, a wonderful reality is a, a defiance of all human expectation that a diversity that I see out in front of me can be united together and function together and work together for one purpose, for one master and one king. That, that, that defies human understanding. It defies all the principles by which most of this world lives. There is this communion then in fellowship. Not only does the Apostles' Creed speak about the one Catholic church, but it speaks about the communion of saints. And as we've uh, done in our chapels and have said to each of the speakers, we'd like you to speak about something on fellowship and communion. And, and we know that Christ indeed is gathering his church from all these peoples and habitations and tribes, and he's building a uh, spiritual house for himself to dwell in. I want to just read to you what Peter says in light of this, as it sets the context also of this passage. In 1 Peter 2, 4, he says, To whom coming, as unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious. He is speaking to the church, to those scattered even. He's speaking to us. You also, as lively or living stones, are built up a spiritual house. This is a spiritual house. There is one house in which God will dwell by his Spirit to all eternity. And Paul uses another analogy. It's not a building analogy, although that is one of the analogies Scripture uses to describe the church and its, and its oneness. There is the description, too, of a bride. It's one bride for one Christ. But in this passage, we're going to look together at in 1 Corinthians 12, we're going to see he speaks about a body. And I want to read 25 to 27 again, although I'll look at different parts of this passage as well. So 1 Corinthians 12, 25, that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care one for another. And whether one member suffer, all the members suffer with it. Or if one member be honored, all the members rejoice with it. 
Now you are the body of Christ and members in particular. I want to look at this theme, the fellowship of the body, with two thoughts. More of a topical uh, understanding of this passage. First of all, the gifts of the body. And then secondly, I want to look at the calling of the body. Well, you know also at the beginning of this chapter that Paul is laying out to the Corinthian church that God has given to her various gifts. There are varying degrees and manners of gifts that have been given to the church. And in particular, those gifts have been given to individuals also in the church by Christ to each member of the body. Not everyone has the same gift. Your gifts differ from the person sitting next to you, and they differ from the gifts given to me. But it's clear that Paul's teaching is that every person, every individual, every member of the body of Christ has been given a gift or gifts. And that each member, therefore, is under not only obligation, it should be their desire and joy to use that gift for the body, for the benefit, for the comfort, for the edifying of the whole. To not use these gifts or gift that we have been given and hoarding this gift perhaps to ourselves constitutes disobedience to the Lord who gave the gift. Christ, as head of his church, has given these gifts for a purpose. He possessed all gifts, we could say. There was nothing lacking in Christ. He was baptized with the Spirit, we could say. He had the Spirit without measure. He has all the gifts that his church needs, and he distributes to this church. And the mind, then, of Christ ought to also be in us, which Paul says in Philippians 2. Fulfill ye my joy, that you be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, Let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now, we can mind other people's business. That's not what Paul is referring to here. Rather, what he is speaking about is have a care for, have a desire to serve your brother and sister in the body. And when Paul writes this letter to Corinth, it's obvious that that was not taking place in the church. And he needed to remind them of this truth. You are one body. You ought to exercise when you come together at the Lord's table. One communion, one fellowship, one mind. Because there's one head, and that is Christ. He needed to correct the Corinthians because there were those at Corinth who imagined or supposed they were uh, superior than others in the congregation, maybe even depending on who baptized them. And this can happen 
can't it? In your churches, at seminary, and other groups that we gather together for fellowship, rather than serving and with that express purpose of coming together for fellowship and communion in Christ's name, it's about me and what I'm going to gain or profit. And what happens is those individuals with this frame of mind have not fully grasped and realized that the gift or gifts that they have, which may outshine others, is not simply their own. It is from the head of the church, Christ. And so Paul here is addressing the Corinthians in this light. He he is keeping this in view from the very beginning of his address to them. If you go back to chapter 1, verse 2, he says, To the church of God which is at Corinth, to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, to be called to be saints, with all that in every place call upon the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. Paul is saying to the Corinthians, I'm writing this letter to you, You are those who've been called, you've been sanctified, set apart as holy in Christ Jesus, alongside of all those in every place who call on the name of the Lord. And when we look in verse 7 in this chapter that I read to you, Paul is saying it is a manifestation of the Spirit that these gifts are displayed the gifts that have been given to every person in the church is for the profit of the whole. It is not for the profit of the person who has received the gift, but for the glory of Christ in his church. And we read this in Ephesians 4, 7 as well. Unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. The ascended Christ has given to you, to me, gift or gifts. And a question I have for us is, have we discerned before the face of God, what is the gift that has been given to us? If we don't understand or recognize the gift that has been given, how can we use it adequately and sufficiently and profitably to those around us? It is to be employed, the gifts given to us, for the advancement of the kingdom of Christ. For the healing, if you will, and the wholeness of the body. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 12, 3 to 6. To every man that is among you, you should not think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but to think soberly, according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, and all members have not the same office, so we being many are one body in Christ, and every one members one of another, having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given us. Yes, he's here talking about offices, it's true, but he's connecting the same idea of this one body being various members and its gifts given to us for the purpose of the glory of Christ. 
You know, if someone gives you a gift in, in, in our daily life, maybe if, maybe if we think of this illustration, uh, a boy gives his now fiancé an engagement ring, and you meet them after church the first time this is made known, what is it that's uh, kind of displayed to everyone is, is this gift. And she's not thinking about herself in this. She's thinking... I trust about the one who has given the gift to her. And she she displays what she's been given for others to see how glorious the one who has asked her to be married is. Now apply this to the same situation of the gift you have been given of Christ. We would almost think it's prideful to display the gift perhaps that we've been given. But I would assert it may be a false humility. He's given us a gift to be used for His glory. And if that's the purpose, and if that's what we keep in mind, and we vocalize that, if we are said, wow, the Lord has really equipped you, He's really gifted you in speaking or preaching or, or writing, well, you, you could simply say, thank you very much. The Lord has given me a great gift. I want to use it for His glory. It brings glory to Christ. And so I ask you another question. Not only have you discerned the gift that has been given to you, are you using it so that others would see it and serve Christ because of it? Paul here is highlighting to the Corinthians and to the Ephesians that Everyone has received indeed a gift. Verse 11 says in our chapter, right before we started reading, all these work that one and self same spirit, dividing every man severally as he will. What does that mean? It means you and I have no reason to be lifted up in pride about perhaps many gifts given to us or be depressed and set back because of few gifts given to us. Paul doesn't know everything about the body like we do with our science and medical knowledge today, but I would dare say that he knew more about the body by inspiration of the Holy Spirit who made the body so he can write clearly here even what is common knowledge. We know that our body is made up of tiny cells working together. All these groups of cells work together. They woven together as one, and they function as a whole. And when there's dysfunction, there is disease in the body. These cells function together as tissues, and they form organs and organ systems, and they, they make up our whole body. And Paul is saying here that when one member, even a little member of the body is hurt, the whole body is affected. How many of you have been walking along a cabinet and you didn't have your shoes on and you stubbed your little toe hard? Your whole body is engaged with that pain. A little toe, seemingly insignificant, and yet our whole body is engaged. When even a little insignificant student here, little known to the rest of the body, or in our churches, is hurting, how many of us are aware 
of the hurt. That's what Paul is saying here to the Corinthians. This is a spiritual body, the church. In the context of the Corinthians, of course, he He's using this illustration to say, if there is a diseased part of the body, and he's looking at it negatively, it needs to be dealt with. This man living with his, his father's wife needs to be dealt with. He needs to be disciplined. He needs to be corrected. And if not, cut off, lest the whole body be affected. Paul is certainly highlighting the reality of the positive aspects of this oneness of the body and how it ought to function. And Paul wants to be clear. This is, whether Jew or Gentile, bond or free, man or woman, all are members of this one body, and we're called to exercise the gift given to us. Paul says further, even the smallest member is often given great honor. It's necessary for that little gift and member in order for the functioning of the whole. I, 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 perhaps you, you know the pituitary gland is a very small gland. It's about the size of your uh, little fingertip, pea-sized gland. If you have that removed, you cannot live, without medication at least. And you may think that your gift is so insignificant, but Paul is saying, no. The gift given to you is from Christ, your head, given to be exercised for the rest of the body. And so the foot, he says, should not say to the hand, I have no need of you. Could you imagine your your foot one day running off down the street? I suppose our body would go running after it and put ourselves together. But you see how our body, the church, doesn't always function that way. How many people have you seen and witnessed leave that body and who's run after them? Has the foot left and you think you can carry on as a body without it? Paul says there should be no schism in the body, no gap in the body because some have left. Or we could say there should be no division or tear in the body because of breakdown in the body within itself. Believers are one body, and the church is not a social organization. It's a body of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is, this is so contrary to our individualistic age today in which we live. We each want to be our own person. We don't want to be accountable to anyone, but that's foreign here to the language of the Apostle Paul in his idea and his teaching regarding the church. Sometimes I imagine when God rolls back the screen on the eternal day, it will not be those who have been at the forefront in our estimation who are necessarily going to be given the great rewards. Because it may have been this poor widow in your congregation who upheld you every single day in prayer. And that pleading and that gift has given you 
to be able to flourish and prosper the way you have. It could be that Priscilla and Aquila receive a great gift in their correcting of Apollo, who Apollos, who, who is able to then be changed in his whole understanding of the gospel and ministry. So what does it mean for us? Well, listen to Calvin for a moment. Everyone desires to have so much himself so that he does not need to have any help from others. But the bond of mutual communication is this, that no one is sufficient for himself, but is to constrained be, but is constrained to borrow from others. I admit then that the society of the godly cannot exist except when one is content with his own measure and imparts to others the gifts he has received and allows himself by turns to be assisted by the gifts of others. When you think of your church, your family, when we think of our seminary community, and we could say body here as well, do you know the individual needs of students, faculty, Do we have that kind of closeness of relationship as one body to be able to pray effectively for one another? When you're in a congregation as a pastor and elders, you will never be able to accomplish the calling and the tasks that are laid before you. You need the body. And so many times, however, it is the pastors and the consistory or presbytery that are seen as those who are heading the body in some fashion they are in behalf of Christ. But in another fashion, they are dependent on the body as well as the body upon them. They are a part of the body. Jesus, he ministered to 12 disciples. He could have ministered to many more. But he would have been extremely exhausted if he tried to do what Moses did. Instead, he discipled 12 very close disciples who were then called to disciple others. It's part of the body. Not every cell of our body is intimately engaged in the rest of the body, but it's for the design of the whole. And so as you minister among each other, as you come together in fellowship, as we meet together on times of prayer on Tuesday and Thursdays, and I encourage you to be there as well if you have class in particular. It's a time in which we are bound together in prayer after in fellowship to speak together, not only what's happening here, I trust, but what the Lord is doing for us. And I'm convinced as well, more and more as I minister in the church and having been separated from uh, both my wife's family and my own, that it is not blood ties or political affiliations that ought to bind us. It is the blood of Christ and the oneness of this body. We are, as the authors of a book by Lane and Tripp, they, they made this statement, we can't become the Christians we are meant to be by being alone with God. That's not God's intent. What we become, we become together. 
God in his marvelous providence has placed you at this particular window of time at Puritan Reformed. Two years, three years, some four or more. But each part of this body overlaps with another segment, another class of this body and the faculty. And the design of God is that each of us profit from one another during this course of time. So that the body, the one body of Christ, the one head of Christ, would be glorified through this ministry that takes place within this body as well. There's no lone rangers in the church. You're not coming here to seminary to just kind of scoot into class and scoot out of class. You're a part of a body that God has marvelously brought together to learn from and to be instrumental in changing by the gifts he has given to you. You see, the world must see that we are different, not by the clothes we would wear, though we be modest, not by the foods we eat, but how we love one another how we fellowship and commune with one another and our head, Jesus Christ. And so the function of these gifts in the body is to have a temple that is built with the saints of all ages in which God is going to dwell. He is fashioning you and me as living stones in this body. He's going to dwell there forever. He already dwells individually by his spirit in the hearts of every believer. But he is forming an edifice. He is building a temple that is so glorious we hardly can grasp an understanding. But he himself will dwell there. And remember the children of Israel, they they had come to believe, and rightly so, because God told them he was going to dwell in the temple. They had every right to lay hold of that truth because God had said it, but they didn't realize these were but shadows and types of the reality of what God was going to do. God is in the process of building a temple, one temple, one temple body that functions organically, that will be one day without disease, without schism, with all the gifts that have been given flowing from the head and used for the glory of God ages to come, whatever he will have us to do. And so as we consider this glorious truth, this function of the glorious body Our hearts ought to be moved and inspired to consider how we can use the gift he has given us more and more to his glory. Imagine if this temple, this body that we've been speaking about would function as God created the body to function. How glorious that would be to the world around us who is hopeless and perishing and dying. There wouldn't be a carelessness then in our walk, our talk. There wouldn't be a striving about insignificant things. 
but we would seek the communion of the saints together and we would seek what Paul says here. If one member suffers, all the members suffer. One member is honored, all the members rejoice. Now you are the body of Christ. You are members in particular. Live that way. Let's pray. Our great God, head of the church, our Lord Jesus Christ, let that oil of brotherhood and fellowship flow as it did from Aaron, as it flows from thee and thy resurrection, power and glory in and through us, binding us together as one body and in our churches in particular as well. So bless us, Lord, as we go forth into this world and bear testimony to this marvelous grace and of the gifts that have been given to us. Forgive us when we have been focused upon ourselves and help us to realize that the gifts we have are simply from thy hand to be used for thy glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.